some amazing words in that hymn. Uh, sometimes I think we read or sing something like that far too quickly and we don't really appreciate what the actual hymnist or author of the hymn is trying to say. But that last statement there in that hymn, uh, we know that when time and the world pass away, well, we do, but I, I can't help wondering what that will be like when time and the world pass away from the day you arrived on planet Earth until the day you leave it. As Brother George reminds us down there very often, we may go the way of all flesh. We may be here when the Lord Jesus comes again. But it'll be time in the world up until then. But someday it'll all pass away. But God's word shall forever endure. I often wonder, you know, what a marvel it is that we can come together this morning and in front of me there's a copy of something that's forever settled in heaven. Somebody said to me one day, is it the King James Version? Well, I I'm, don't know what sort of an answer to give to that one. <laughs> that's what he asked me. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't think it somehow. But <laughs> I think it's Hebrew. Uh, but that's just my thinking. That's, don't be branding me as a heretic for saying that. Uh, it's forever settled in heaven. Thank God for that fact. Well, big thanks for your welcome again this morning, friends. And it's lovely to be back up in Cookstown and just to have the opportunity of opening the word again and sharing with you for a time from the scriptures of truth. I must apologize for the car out at the front. And if you hear weird and wild noises, you'll notice there twice I had to go out to the thing. I don't know what's happening. There's a, a warning thing on the car that if somebody tries to break into the car or something, it starts to yell its head off. Well, there's nobody out there breaking in that I can see, and twice already it's been screaming, like Billy-O out there. So if it does it again, it can just squeal away there. And uh, <clears throat> the other night, in the middle of the night, away it went again. I thought, oh my goodness, my neighbours will be killing me. And uh, I went down and I saw this black cat. I don't know whether it was the cat or not, but there's no black cat out there this morning. And uh, uh, one of my neighbours said to me, well, you've one or two things to do. I said, what is it? He says, you can either change the car or shoot the cat. Someone of the two. <laughs> so up to the moment, I haven't had to do either. It reminded me of a dear brother that I knew very well who ran a little mission hall away in the wilds of the country. And uh, I still go there to preach from time to time. He's now gone to glory long ago, but his name was Willie. And Willie bought a black taxi one time. And the purpose of buying the black taxi was to ferry people in and out of the meetings. And of course, he did that for quite a considerable period of time. Him and his wife and another lady used to go out taking meetings together. The two ladies sang and he preached. And in these days, I don't know what they would do with him. He had this old motorbike. Um, and the wife, she sat on a cushion on the petrol tank. And the other lady hung on behind him at the back. <laughs> it was the weirdest looking thing ever you saw. 
going along the road, but it got him away for years. But anyway, uh, people said to him one day, well, Willie, how are you getting on with a taxi? And he's a very humorous man. Oh, he said, bad behavior. It both smokes and drinks. <laughs> the old taxi was putting the smoke out of it and drinking the petrol. He wasn't happy. Bad behavior, he says. It both smokes and drinks. Well, bad behavior. Behave yourself till the meeting's over. Come with me to the Thessalonian epistle this morning, friends, and to chapter 1. First Thessalonians and the first chapter, please. Now, I'm not going to read the first chapter at all. I'll just leave that to you when you get time. Maybe later on today, if you have a few moments, you might like to run your eye over the chapter from beginning to end. It's a very, very interesting chapter to read. But it deals, if you like, the Thessalonian epistles, rather, deal with the return of our Lord and our Saviour Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're asked the question, why are there two epistles? Would one not have done? Well, there are right reasons we could give for that, but the principal reason was to establish the two stages of the second coming. In First Thessalonians, Paul deals with a rapture when Christ comes to the air. You remember those remarkable words in chapter 4. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first and so on. And then when you come to the second epistle, again he's talking about the Lord's return. But it's not the revelation of the rapture this time. It's the revelation when he comes in great power and great glory to set up his great kingdom. So I think possibly that's one of the principal reasons why we have First and Second Thessalonians. However, as I reminded you last Lord's Day morning, friends, I've been thinking quite a bit recently about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and how it should be affecting you and I as believers today. And as I've looked into this issue, friends, I've discovered that it ought to be affecting our living in at least six different ways. Now, Last Lord's Day morning, I talked to you about one of them when we saw that it should be affecting our expectation. We should be looking for it, taking place at any moment in time. You remember, we had that verse in Hebrews 10. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now we looked into the significance of those words, and there's no need for me to repeat them again in the meeting today. But he who shall come will come. That should be our expectation. But this morning I want to come to our experience, or 
if you like, our embracing of this great truth. How we need to embrace this the way we embrace the Savior. You see, you can look back to the time in your life when you came as a sinner to Jesus. And when, by faith, you embraced the Lord Jesus. By grace, are you saved through faith. And of course, that faith not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And there are many other issues that we accept and have accepted by a simple act of faith. But here we're coming to the fact of the Lord's return and embracing it by faith, realizing that he could keep his promise today, this very moment in time. This might have been the last time that we would need the bread and wine. Who knows, next Lord's Day, we could all be together, not with the symbol, but with the substance, with Christ, which is very far much better. Very often I wonder what that term actually means, which is far better. And of course it is, because there's no sin up there, there's no devil up there, there's no persecuting world up there. All of those things belong to the former things that have passed away. When we're all gathered home in the morning, what a gathering that will be. It could happen maybe sooner than you and I expect. But you know, brethren and sisters, it's one thing to hold a doctrine. It's another thing for a doctrine to hold you. Completely different altogether. You could hold a doctrine in your grip. And you could defend it with might and main and rightly so. But it needs to hold you in order to become effective in your living. I told you last Lord's Day about the old man, I think I did, that took the stroke and the mission I was holding. And I went to visit him and every day he said the same thing. He let that window blind up and he looked and he said, I wonder will he come today? Now, that went on during the whole time that I was there and I'm perfectly sure it continued until the end of life's journey. He's the only man I ever knew who had a number of sons in his family and every one of them was in full-time work for the Lord. Very remarkable family indeed. However, that's another issue. He's gone, and the family are all gone now too. There's just none of them there. That's how time passes away and makes a difference. However, how much of a grip has the second coming of Christ on your life and on mine today? Those words, as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. Get that? It's only until he come. Have we been thinking about that today? Did we come to the meeting this morning saying, well, once more yet once less. Maybe the next time we celebrate 
we'll celebrate with him in heaven. What a thrill that would be, because it's only till he come. As I go around today, I'm trying to instill this into the minds and into the hearts of God's people, because I honestly believe this. It's only when we get an urgency about the Lord's return into our minds and hearts that we'll get an urgent zeal to seek out others. Last Thursday evening, I was preaching in a meeting, and at the end of the meeting, uh, I'd said a little just about this very line from a different angle altogether, and a brother came up to me afterwards, and he said to me, Harvey, you know, you've no idea how hard-hitting that was. And I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, I was sitting there after you said what you did and I was counting. And he said, between my family and my wife's family, there are 147 of us. Think of that. Between grandchildren and great-grandchildren, that's the right age of a man. I said, that's quite a few. He says, it is. But there's only seven of us ready. Now he said, there's 140 not ready. And you see, that's the other side of the coin. What I was stressing to them was this, that here's John. And John's the only disciple that wasn't brutally murdered, executed, martyred for his faith. Judas, of course, committed suicide. But the other ten all lost their lives. You remember Peter was actually crucified upside down at his own request. So history tells us. But John died at Ephesus a natural death. He was the only one who did. And he was sent there, as he said, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was trying to emphasize what that meant. You see... John was an evangelist. There's no doubt about that one. And he was also an author. He wrote the fourth gospel. And he wrote first, second and third John. He was sent there for all those reasons. And he was busily engaged in the service of Christ. He was wasting no time. He was stuck in from morning till night doing what he believed God would have him do. But he said this, even so irrespective of what I'm doing or how important for the world or for the church these things may be even so come Lord Jesus if it's your wish and will Lord that you should come before I get this job finished that's fine even so come Lord Jesus that's what I was trying to explain to that brother that salvation is of the Lord and everyone carries their own responsibility. And if this other grouping within his family continue to reject Christ, what can he do? Only continue to pray and witness. And the Lord will give them every opportunity. But the Lord will come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And I often think of these words. My goodness, look where the clock's at already. I haven't even started. But uh, I often think about those words of this day and hour. Knoweth no man. Know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. You see, friends, while the Lord Jesus was here in this world, 
He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. He was all three. But here he's a prophet. And he's looking away down through the years and centuries of time, maybe to the day in which you and I are living. And he's telling the folks this. There's a 24-hour day that will dawn. And within that 24-hour day, there's an hour that will strike. And when that day dawns and that hour strikes, I will come. That's it. You might ask the question, of course, when he said, my father only, does that mean the Lord Jesus doesn't know? Not at all, friend. The Lord Jesus Christ has super knowledge. You only need to read the gospel according to John and you'll find that in every single chapter. The super knowledge of Christ shining out. But what he meant was this. The Father's timing was perfect the first time and it will be perfect the second time. He knows exactly when the Father will say arise and go and he's waiting for that moment to come. However, that's another issue. But here in this epistle, my friends, in 1 Thessalonians and in chapter number 1, you find the apostle emphasizing the experience or the embracing of this thing about the Lord's return that you and I should really have as the people of God today. And I want to take a quick look at verse 9 and move into verse 10 quickly because it's really in verse 10 that you get the issue coming out. But at the beginning of the verse, you've got what I've called a what. Now, there's eight of these in these two verses, and I'll just do these first four quickly. What a potential is here. Paul says, verse 9, For they themselves show of us. Now, what's he talking about there, they themselves? Well, he's talking about the Christians of Macedonia and Achaia, and in every place your faith to Godwards is spread about, so that we need not to speak anything. In other words, the Thessalonians saw the potential in others. And they got out with a message of the gospel and they did it so well, so very well, that Paul needed to do absolutely nothing when he went there. The Thessalonians had done it all. They had exercised their evangelical ability and responsibility to such an extent that Paul didn't need to go. That's remarkable. He saw the potential that was there. I walked into a meeting to preach in the meeting last Sunday night. And I had no idea, friends, I hadn't been there since before they, I was nearly going to say the meltdown there, well, lockdown, I mean, I think you know what I mean. But uh, <clears throat> when I went to my amazement, I discovered in the meeting so many young people now, there we go again. She's whistling away out there. I thought Ruth had done that there, but uh, don't think it was you. But anyway, <laughs> the, uh, the um, young people were sitting there, so many of them, in the meeting. And as I was sitting looking, I was sitting in the side, just as I did this morning, 
I'm thinking to myself, now I haven't come here prepared to speak to young people at all. What on earth will I do? And my mind went away back to the days when I was a young fellow, you see, a child rather. My granddad used to take me to the meetings on a Sunday night in the gospel hall on the bar of the bike sitting on a cushion. So you'll realize that's a good while ago. But I used to go in and I wasn't brought up in an environment where I understood a big lot about the Bible or the gospel. My father and mother never went to church at all until my father got saved and that was after I did. So for years there was no church attendance in the family whatever and I went if I wanted but I was never sent to anything like that but I always had the desire to go. But Granda got me there any time that he could. But I remember some of the things that confused me. I remember they sang the hymn one night. A ruler once came to Jesus by night. You see to ask him the way of salvation and light. And I'm sitting thinking. I had just started to go to school. And the only ruler I knew was this 12 inch thing. You see. And I said after me. I said Granda what did that mean? How did a 12-inch ruler come to Jesus by night to ask him the way of salvation? I'm glad to explain it to me, but that just shows you where, how dark I was about truth at that particular time. But I used to go in, you know, and this preacher would get up and he would preach, and boy, he would give it out, and it was powerful stuff. Now, I can't remember it now. But he was way above my head. He really was, you see. And I was sitting there thinking, right, what is he trying to say? And then he would finally say amen and sit down. And I was probably greatly relieved. And I thought, what's happening now? Up gets another one. You know the way they had to do two preachers. And I'm saying to myself, oh no, not another one. He'll muddle me up far more than what I am. And I, I looked at all these young people sitting. And I said, I've got to do something here. So who walked into the meeting but a local school teacher who is a Christian? And uh, I just went up and I whispered into the ear of this teacher. I said, can you give a word to these young people. Aye, says we'll do that, just like a flash, but he said, my son's there, and uh, he achieved a gold medal in some kind of junior Olympics, and he's so proud of it, he won't leave it down. He's only 15, he's wearing it around his neck. He says, I'll bring him up and we'll talk, and he did. And we got all the young people to come and sit around on the floor at the front, and it was only after the meeting was over that I realized I had broke the rules, but let's hope everything's okay. But anyway, he talked about how he needed to prepare this young fella for receiving this medal and this award and how anxious he was that he would get it and all the time and effort he put into it. And then he had the medal, you see, and he brought it around how that we need to prepare for heaven and then to serve the Lord to achieve these crowns, these crowns which he illustrated from the gold medal. It's the only time I'd ever seen a gold medal. But a lovely thing to have it in my hand. You see, but you know, friends, sometimes we're far too slack when it comes to moving out to reach others. Now, the Thessalonians weren't. One thing that used to greatly annoy me in mission times was when people would come into the mission, and especially if I had a tent up, and I was sitting in the wee caravan watching as people would come in, and a car would come in, a driver, nobody here, nobody in the back. Four empty seats. And I used to say, could you not find four people, boy, to bring with you? And one night I got up and gave out about it. 
you see. I'd had enough of this. I was watching it and I was seeing all these guys coming in and, oh brother, that gospel is good and it's such a thrill to hear. Why don't you bring somebody if it's, you know, so good as you say? And one night from the pulpit I decided, right, here goes, I'm going to have a bang at this. And I did. Do you know it was very effective? People took it on board. And uh, they said, I know a brother very well. I went on to something I shouldn't be near, but I do. I know this brother very well. And you need to know him to know him. You understand me? He's a real character. And, for example, I was standing in a shop one day not so very long ago waiting to pay for something. The next thing, a hand just got me like that, and I looked around, there's James. He looked at me and says, Brother, are you getting ready for the liftoff? Now think about it. That's what he called the second common, the liftoff. Are you getting ready for the liftoff? Jimmy will hit you with something like that that makes you think. But Jimmy has a principle, and it's this. He will not go to a gospel meeting without bringing an unsaved person with him. He won't do it. And I don't know how many times I have knelt with a soul and brought them to the Lord that Jimmy brought to the meeting. Matter of fact, I was stopped in Armagh one day, and as I was walking up to the car, I saw this blondie-haired girl dressed in a uniform. I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? And I had overstepped the time on the, the, the wee thing for about five minutes. And I went up and she says, I'm not going to give you a ticket. She says, I know you. And I looked at her. I says, I don't know you. No, she says, you probably don't remember me. She says, do you remember Jimmy Barney brought me into the meeting one night in an old minibus and you led me to the Lord? I said, I don't remember a thing about it. But there she was years later going on with the Lord. And that's what I'm at. That's what's here. That's the potential that these Thessalonians saw. They looked around. They saw evangelists, pastors, teachers out there in this neighborhood, in this locality, and they went out to get them. Brother Sam mentioned about election this morning there in the meeting. And I remember a man saying to me one time in, in, during the course of a mission, we don't need to be as excited as that. He said, if they're elect, they'll be brought in anyway. I said, brother, would you have a bit of sense? If there's an elect people out there, let me go and get them. Well, that's what it should do to give you an evangelical zeal. If they're there, go get them. Bring them in from the fields of sin. And the sooner we do, the sooner the Lord will return. Now, there's the potential that was there. Much more I could say about that. But what a progress comes next, because here's what we read. Very amazing words. What manner of entering in we had unto you. Now, Paul and his companions, they came to Thessalonica. It was a kind of a Roman fort and a very busy seaside town. But there was idolatry no end. And there was nothing of the gospel as we know it today. Not a thing. But Paul went in and preached the gospel. And what progress there was. People were saved. And the little assembly was established. The word of God took effect and took root in the hearts and lives of poor sinners. And you know, they were brought to know the Savior. I don't know what the end product of the evangelistic outreach to Thessalonica would have been. But I know this, it was pretty big. It was. 
and a major witness for the Lord was established. That's the progress that we need to see today. You know, I drove past a, a hall just here the other day. It's still going. I go to it from time to time. And I remember, and I'm saying this to the glory of God, friend, nothing to do with me. Starting a gospel mission there in that hall. And I went there on the first Sunday in January. And we were still going on Easter Tuesday. At that mission. I had to stop on Easter Tuesday. I had to tell the boys. I said, look, my throat won't stick this any longer. I've got to quit. This was three months every single night. You see. And there never was a revival. Never. But you just couldn't stop. There was somebody saved every night. This is what was happening. And uh, there was one night in particular. Three sisters went along to the house where the leader of the work lived. And I've been talking about the Lord's return and the three of them were saved on that night. And I didn't know anything about it until I arrived back up on the Sunday to begin another week of meetings. You see, God doesn't need you. But there were three lads who got saved in that mission. It was a remarkable thing. They were out from the Moy and they were out for a bit of a drive one Sunday and didn't they come into the mission. And the Lord saved the three of them in the one night. And those three boys have gone on so well with the Lord. But they met those three girls and married the three of them. And the father said, Bert said to me, Shaw, you've wrecked the house. He says, that's what he told me. <laughs> but there's, that's how it goes. But my friend, progress is possible, but it's not there today the way it used to be. It certainly isn't. I think we need to get back to the old time praying and to old time preaching and to old time zeal to do what these Thessalonians did. We're saved now. But let's get out to the rest of these folk. Get hold of them. Get them in. Bring them to the meeting. Bring them to the Savior. And who knows what God will do. Our God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Now notice the promotion that comes next. I, I'm hurrying on with this. There's a remarkable promotion here. And how ye turn to God from idols. I was thinking about that on my way up to the meeting this morning. You turn to God from idols. I can never remember ever seeing anyone coming to the Lord that I could have said that about. That statue of Peter was so sad to look at. But these people turned to God from idols. Now please note the statement there, brethren and sisters. They turned to God from idols. They didn't turn from idols to God. The other way round. They turned to God from idols. If they had turned from idols to God, they would have said, Paul, we'll try your God. And if it doesn't work, we'll go back to our idols again. But they turned to God from idols. They left the idols behind. They had come to stay. The Thessalonians had no intention of going back to their idols. None whatever. And thank God, as far as I know, they never did. They turned to God from idols. Not from idols to God. And if that doesn't work, we'll go back. No. We're going to God, Paul. And we're staying. Now that must have been the impressive testimony of Paul and his companions that did that. Friends, there's no greater promotion subject today than the gospel. No greater. What a thrill it is to kneel with a soul 
and to bring that person to Christ and to know that they have been brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. They may not know it at the time, but all these things have happened. And of course, they were on their way to hell when you knelt with them. When you get up of your knees with them, they're on their way to heaven. What a promotion that is, whether it's idols or not. The Spurgeon said that the greatest thrill that any man can get as an evangelist or a preacher, apart from his own salvation, is to bring another person to Christ. For he said this when he led his first soul to the Lord, he got this thirst, this hunger, like a young lion after its first kill had got the, 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 the thirst of blood and it was cry, he was crying out, give me more, give me more, give me more, just like the young lion. He had a, an unsatisfiable desire to bring others to Christ. And of course, he had a very successful ministry on that line. All right? So there's the, the promotion. Now let's see the practice. I love this. What were they going to do next? To serve the living and true God. Did you ever take a note of that, friends? They had been serving dead, untrue, lying idols. That's what they had been doing. But now they had come to practice something different. They had come to serve the living and the true God. That's who we serve today. And you know, you just can't do what you like when you turn around to serve the living and the true God. You can't toss his principles and precepts overboard. You can't do that and do things to suit yourself. That's not going to work. No, no. It's God's word and God's work done in God's way. You see, and I think it was, what was it, George Muller who said that God's word done in God's way and according to God's word would never, ever neglect or lack God's supply. And it never did. Never did. But, my friends, we're there, we're saved to serve and remember who you're serving. When you come back in through that door tonight again with the gospel message, it's to serve the living and the true God. It'll be probably... Hundreds of people out round in the community here who will spend their time tonight at anything but serving God. It'll be the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah, but you're different. You belong to the Lord now. And don't forget, friends, we are different, God's people. Thank God we're not what we're going to be. You see, and we're not what we used to be. But by the grace of God, we are what we are. That's it. We ought to be different from the world. We ought to stand out different from the world. Unashamedly taking our stand for the Lord, no matter what the cost may be. I remember conducting a series of meetings, friends, in a village in the arts where I come from. All many years ago, there was a young lad who has done extremely well got saved at those meetings and every Sunday night he would call at my father and mother's house where I was at the time and we'd walk 
down to the meeting together and there'll be a bunch of boys standing at the corner and they would tear into this guy, you see. And they would call him, there he goes, Holy Jew, Bible thumper, and all the rest of it. And I could see that this was getting to him. I could see that. And as a young Christian and a young believer, they were making things hard. So the following Sunday night, we were going around the corner and before we got that length, you, you have to walk around this corner to get to where the gospel meeting was, along the roadway. I said to him, I said, look, if these boys start into you tonight again, I said, just you stand there to, and leave it to me. You see? He says, what are you going to do? I says, you wait and see. So, of course, we head us around the corner. Up goes the laugh and the shout. Holy Jew, Bible thumpers, and all the rest of it. I says to the lad, give me your Bible. He handed me this wee new Bible that we had bought him. I walked over to where these boys were standing and there came a, a silence. But there was one big guy who was the ringleader. And very often if you can kill the ringleader, you'll sort the rest. Very often the way it works. And I never forgot his name was Hugh. And I went up and I said, Hugh, you're shouting very loud. What, what about? What's wrong? What's annoying you? Oh, he said he's away and left us. Holy Jew. Bible thumper. You see, and a number of other things. I said, listen, here's his wee Bible. He said, I said, uh, you see it there? Here's a do. He said, here, take it in your hand. Why, he said. He said, carry you along the road. Oh, no, he said, I wouldn't do that. I said, who's the coward now? I said, man, listen, there's more manliness in his body than there is in your two feet. I said, leave him alone. Encourage him. And if there's anything in you before the mission's over, come and join him. Sometimes you have to. Go for these things because... If I had to let that go on, it could have racked that lad. He's now a married man. He rang me here the other day. I did his wedding. And he's, every single one of his family are married. And uh, him and her are still going on, rejoicing in the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. Now, I'm coming to the final point of the message this morning. You see, uh, I can't finish this. What a patience. What a potential. What a progress. What a promotion. What a practice. But what a patience. Have a look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven. You got that? Now my friends, they were doing all that's in verse 8 and 9. They were performing it all to the best of their ability. Beyond any doubt. But as they did it, they were patiently waiting for Christ to come. Got that? Now these people are gone maybe 2,000 years ago. You see, but that didn't hinder them waiting. Waiting for the Lord to come at any moment. I'll tell you something now, friends. The hope of the Lord's return, burning into your heart and mine, is the greatest thing we'll ever have to keep us united as a people and to keep us away from the carnality of the world. 
you wouldn't want to be caught up and caught on. I was talking to a man there one day lately. I'll give you some idea of what he told me. His name was John. He said, Harvey, I can't understand the days we're living in, and especially at times young people. I said, why, John? Well, he said, look, when I was thinking about getting saved, I was really troubled about it. He said, I used to go along to the old picture house on a Saturday night. And he said, there was one Saturday night in particular that I was in there. And he said, I was so thinking about the Lord coming and catching me in there even though I wasn't saved. He said, I couldn't stay. I had to get up and get out. But he said, now the young people can go along to the cinema. It doesn't bother them at all. And the standards have dropped. Now, you don't drop standards, my friends, to keep going. You don't do that. You've got to maintain the standard. And when you maintain the standard, God will bless you. But don't forget the Lord's coming. Please, hold tight to that. And to wait for his son from heaven. I'd really love to have the time this morning to tell you what that means. But I haven't. We're going to have to leave it there. That's the patience. The hymn writer wrote, if I can remember it correctly, in patience let us then possess our souls till he appear. Our head already is in heaven and we shall soon be there. Brothers and sisters, we were never promised a bed of roses. Never. And the Christian life is not that. I, I don't know where these people get these ideas from that once you get saved, you'll never have a problem again. It hasn't been my experience, I can tell you. Sometimes the problems are far worse. But that's the way things are in this world. And Remember, you're a pilgrim and a stranger. You don't belong here. You're just sojourning, staying here a wee while. Then someday, if the Lord tarries, we'll all be gone. And if he doesn't, we'll still all be gone. That's the way it is. So, let's wait for a son from heaven. I trust we'll experience and embrace that today. That it will lay hold on us. That Jesus is coming. Sing the glad word. Coming for those he's redeemed by his blood. Coming to reign as a glorified Lord. Jesus is coming again. May the Lord bless you and his word. Just a little prayer. Lord, we bow at thy feet in Jesus' name today. Thanking thee that thou art here. And thank thee for the illumination of thy word. May we not be mere hearers of thy word, but doers of it today. Anything that has been of man, may it be both forgiven and forgotten. Everything that has been of God, we pray that it will be richly and abundantly blessed. As we part, may it be with thy blessing. As we travel, give to us journeying mercies and come up later tonight. And bring souls to the Savior. Lord, and as the mighty word goes out, the way that it does from this fellowship, may it be blessed of thyself. May saint and sinner alike benefit from it all greatly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless you folks. Look after you.